Hello, and welcome to the DeathCast. I'm your host, author and journalist Ian Tott, and I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our first real deep dive of the year. We're going to be looking at the life, career, and crimes of Cyril Smith, a British MP. This series is going to be somewhat of a compendium to the life and crimes of Jimmy Savile. Now, before I get into it, as always, I have the normal show notes. If you enjoy what I do, please consider leaving a five-star review wherever it is you find your favorite podcasts. If you'd like to help support my work monetarily, you can go to buymeacoffee.com backslash the deathcast. No amount is too little, and of course, no amount is too much. And lastly, if you would like to follow me on social media, just search for the deathcast, the deathcast pod, or Deathcast Podcast. You can find me on most social media sites under those names. All right, now that all of that is out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair, kick back and relax. I have my coffee, I have my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. All right, as stated at the open of this show, we're going to be looking into the life career, and crimes of former British MP, that's Member of Parliament, Cyril Smith. Much like Jimmy Savile, this is an individual I have been researching for many years. However, unlike Savile, who had allegations raised against him after his passing, Smith had numerous allegations of child sexual abuse during his lifetime. And you're going to see as we move forward with these things that Smith was really the epitome of what a lot of those who are termed conspiracy theorists talk about in terms of child sexual abuse. Now, I want to make it clear, I'm not a subscriber to the majority of conspiracy theories. However, many times, especially when child abuse is concerned, when a story of CSA comes to prominence from the conspiracy theory community, it is based on evidence from past events. I do want to make that clear because I know people hear that term conspiracy theory and it instantly turns them off. In cases of child sexual abuse, unfortunately, there is nuggets of truth inside of these theories. And you're going to see that Smith was indeed one of these nuggets of truth. Cyril Richard Smith was born on June 28, 1928 in Rochdale, Lancashire, England. Rochdale is located in Greater Manchester in the northern part of the country and had at the time of his birth a lot of 
farming and textile mills, which made up the majority of the city's economy. Smith was the oldest of three children born to Ava Smith, and it's important to note that Smith was an illegitimate child. He never knew who his father was, nor, from what I have been able to discover, neither Smith's half-sister Eunice nor his half-brother Norman knew who their fathers were. And they lived in a small, one-up, one-down cottage on Fallinge Road, along with Smith's grandmother. It is important to point out the fact that Smith did not know his father, because during this period of time of his birth and moving forward, being what in America we term a bastard was seen as something of a moral failing, and in fact, many children who did not know their fathers were looked down upon by the majority of society. This was, in fact, the case with the Smith family. Smith described many times over the course of his life the sense of being an outsider that he got from not knowing who his father was and how to him, it put him apart from the rest of the children that he was go growing up with. And in fact, he and his siblings, because of the uncertainty of their parentage, were not allowed into many of the shops in and around Rochdale. This sense of being an outsider was also compounded by the fact that Smith's family was extremely poor. His mother worked at a cotton mill, and unfortunately, during this period of history that we're talking about, 1920s, 1930s, the country of Britain was in the midst of the Great Depression, much as the rest of the world was. In fact, Many families were flat-out starving, and they went to the government for assistance. Specifically, an organization known as the Public Assistance Committee, who would decide whether or not your family qualified for this assistance. The Public Assistance Committee was really a disgusting organization or organ of the government. They would come into your home and go through every single thing in your house to decide whether or not they would give you assistance. More than that, however, if they saw anything of value within the house, they would inform you that you needed to sell those items before you could even remotely be considered for assistance. So during this period of time, as Smith is being born in 1928, you have the Depression going on, you have families starting, there is a great sense of unrest throughout all of the United Kingdom. Families were forced to eat bread covered in drippings or to share an egg or a potato. This is to give you an idea of just how 
dire the circumstances were during this period of time. And the people of Great Britain were not happy about this. In fact, there were numerous marches and protests throughout the country with people attempting to storm the Public Assistance Committee offices. Oftentimes, these marches and protests were met by force from the police who would use their batons on them to stop what was considered by the government as the rabble from uprising. There are numerous accounts from this period of time of mothers starving to death as they attempted to feed their children and their families. And just as there are records of that, there are many records from Smith and his siblings recounting tales of how their mother would go hungry in order to ensure that her children and her mother were able to eat. The area of Britain that the Smiths lived in, Lancashire, was known to have the lowest unemployment payments and food subsidy payments in the entire country, with the government going so far as to remove roughly a third of the 800,000 people living within the area from unemployment and food benefits. Decades later, Smith would describe himself as having been, quote, illegitimate, deprived, and poor. To further illustrate the conditions that Smith grew up in, they did not have a working toilet inside of their home. Instead, they had a communal toilet, which was roughly 300 yards from their front door, and they had to share this with everyone that lived on their street. As children, Smith and his brother Norman were known, as were many children inside Rochdale, to prowl the streets when not in school, looking for bits of coal or wood that they could later use in the family fire. This was so widespread that there were many accounts of skirmishes between children, including Smith, who was a rather large boy, despite the fact that his family was so poor. Later on in his life, Smith would talk quite openly about the fact that he was never able, despite his great successes, to shake the stigma of being both poor and illegitimate. And it's been said that this had a profound effect on him. I'm sure this was compounded by the fact that, at least according to Smith, on one occasion he heard his mother talking to a neighbor who lived in the apartment downstairs, and this neighbor basically stated that his mother would have been better off had she either put Smith up for adoption or undergone an abortion. Things like that do have deep scarring psychological effects on children, and Smith was no different. 
Later in life, he became a very fierce opponent of abortion. With all of this going on, Smith was his mother's favorite child and the one that she had the highest hopes for. He also was the man of the house because there was no father present, and this put further pressure on his young shoulders, as while his mother was out at work, it was up to Smith to watch over and take care of his two younger siblings, something that it seems he was more than willing to do, and I suppose that speaks to his constitution in some regards. And I say that because, well, you're going to see Cyril Smith was an absolutely horrible human being. At least during these early years, it does appear there was some good inside of him. And in fact, it may have been that the crimes which he was to go on and commit were simply an extension of his desire for power more than a predilection for young children. During these early formative years of his life, it was noted by many that Smith was an extremely intelligent young man, something which would come to kind of personify Smith in his later years, Many saw him as this somewhat cartoonish buffoon, but there was a great deal of intellect behind the outside facade. During these first years of schooling, it was noted that he rarely had any type of disciplinary infractions or difficulty with the coursework. We will get back to our story in just a moment. Face it, shaker bottles suck. Your protein shake always comes out clumpy and you look like an idiot using the thing. That's why I decided to ditch my shaker bottle for good and get myself a BlendJet 2 portable blender. It makes perfectly blended protein shakes in just 20 seconds. BlendJet 2 is portable so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. BlendJet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. And it lasts for 15 plus blends and recharges quickly via a USB-C cord. Best of all, BlendJet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water and a drop of soap and you're good to go. So what are you waiting for? Go to BlendJet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use the promo code DCASTPOD to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the BlendJet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the BlendJet 2 portable blender. Go to BlendJet.com. Dot com and use the code DCASTPOD to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. Again, that's BlendJet.com and use promo code DCASTPOD at checkout. That's capital D, capital C, A-S-T, capital P-O-D, 
at checkout to get 12% off and free two-day shipping. We are back. During this period of time, the early to mid-1930s, Rochdale got its very first cinema, and Smith was fond of telling a story in later years how the movie Boys Town with Mickey Rooney began playing at the cinema. Obviously, because his family was so poor, he and his siblings were unable to attend this movie. However, the school was able to arrange for the students to go see it. Again, though, Smith's family could not afford this extra expense, and Smith's teacher actually took it upon herself to pay for Cyril's admission, something which he never forgot. There is video evidence of this, as later on in life when this teacher Miss Halstead was preparing to retire, M.P. Smith came to the ceremony and recounted, while openly weeping, the kindness that she had shown him, because it wasn't just the fact that his teacher had done this for him, but what the movie Boys Town represented to him. For those who haven't seen it, it tells the story of basically an orphanage and its headmaster and one of the students who is attending it, played by Mickey Rooney, who is an outsider who goes on really through his own force of will to oversee the school himself. Smith did say many times that watching this film, he saw himself in the main character, this outsider who rises above everyone's expectations to be a leader among men. And this was, in fact, something that Smith would do once he came to power, in that Smith would take a very great interest in these institutions, these orphanages, and these schools for wayward boys. However, unfortunately, as you're going to see very possibly in the next episode, Smith's intentions involving these schools were not at all pure, even though he played it off to the cameras and to his constituents as being such. Smith also left the movie with a quest in his mind, and that was to discover what a mayor was, as he had never heard the term. And by his own admission, Cyril Smith began to stand outside the town hall in Rochdale in an attempt to see the mayor. Obviously, he went home and asked his mother who the mayor was, and she told him where he was that the man could be found. So Smith took it upon himself to go and stand outside of this town hall during his free time, and eventually he did catch sight of the mayor, and seeing the man is said to have had a very profound effect on him. By his own admissions, seeing the man draped in his robes and with various medals, 
Smith decided that if the character in the movie could rise to such a position, then he himself, Cyril Smith, could dare to dream and rise to the position as well, which is a very ambitious and lofty goal, considering where it is that he was coming from. And there are parallels between Cyril Smith's early life as well as the life of Jimmy Savile, both of them, came from extremely impoverished families, and both of them grew up being hustlers, although Savile seems to have been a much more experienced one than Smith turned out to be. Smith, who I've already stated was a larger-than-average boy, was to have an incident occur prior to joining what in America is considered middle school. Smith was involved in an accident which, according to him, had severe repercussions for the rest of his life. He was playing a game of football with other students during recess and as one of the boys was running towards him with the ball, Smith tackled the young man. Both of them received various scratches and cuts. However, the school didn't see anything wrong with it. They cleaned the children up, sent them back to class. It wasn't until a few days later, though, that this seemingly innocuous event bore fruit as Smith collapsed while at school. He was taken to the hospital, where it was discovered that a small piece of gravel had gotten inside of one of his cuts and traveled through his body to the bloodstream, where it lodged inside of his kidney. Smith ended up being diagnosed with nephritis. Nephritis is described as an inflammation of the kidneys that may infect the small blood vessels at the beginning of the nephron in the kidneys, as well as the intestinal tissue that surrounds these blood vessels. It is known to be fatal if untreated, and according to my research, many soldiers from World War I onward are said to have died of it. During this period of time that Smith contracts this disease, Britain did not have the National Health Service, which, for those unaware, basically means free medical for everyone in the country. So Smith's family had to rely on the family doctor for his treatment, which may have proved fatal for Smith had his family doctor been one of those individuals who was more concerned with receiving payment than he was in taking care of his charges. However, Smith's family doctor went above and beyond. Smith lay in a sick bed at the house he shared with his family for an estimated eight months before being sent on to an open-air school for convalescing children for a further nine months. So that should give you some idea as to the seriousness of Smith's condition at this point. Upon being released from this home for convalescing children, Smith 
informed his mother that he planned on taking his exams so that he could move on to middle school or, as it was known in the UK at this point, grammar school. His mother was fearful that her son was pushing himself too hard. However, she asked to his demands, and Smith did indeed pass the exams. I want to mention very quickly, a lot of information I am using comes from contemporary news accounts, Cyril Smith's own biography, as well as the book Smile for the Camera, The Double Life of Cyril Smith by Simon Danschuk and Matthew Baker. Now, a number of things happened after Smith returned to school. Most notably, people noticed that despite the fact that his family was so exceptionally poor, Smith began to put on weight. We're not talking small amount of weight either. When he came back to school, Smith was roughly 168 pounds. And this quickly ballooned. Eventually, Smith would end up weighing in around 280 to 300 pounds. So, he's a big boy. And he's also fairly tall. By the time Smith does leave school at the age of 17, he's going to be 6 foot 2 in height. During this time, he comes back to school, he's putting on weight, the other students take notice of it, and according to Smith's own recollections, as well as those of contemporaries, he was picked on mercilessly for this, which, as everyone knows, is still very common to this day. Smith, however, seems to have taken these jabs about his weight in stride. And while it hurt him inside, it only served to toughen his exterior as well as the man that he was growing up to be. To quote Cyril Smith himself, I didn't grow up as someone's son. I grew up as me. Cyril Smith, individual. It was one of the first lessons of life, perhaps one of the most painful. Now, there were a number of contributing factors to Smith's weight gain. He believed that it was partially responsible to the nephritis, but he did concede his poor diet also helped in this regard as did the fact that because of his condition, the school deemed Smith unfit to participate in any sort of sports, meaning football, soccer, that type of thing. Instead, Smith was relegated to participating in table tennis, or as it's known in the United States, ping pong. And it was said that he was exceptionally skilled at this, with Numerous people recounting that despite his size, he was extremely nimble at the table and was one of the better players in the whole of the United Kingdom. It was also during this period of time that Smith's personality began to emerge. 
You know, he had been this rather quiet child, but he quickly grew into an extrovert who was known for his quick wit, simple way of speaking, as well as his clownish, almost buffoon-like persona. Tales of him playing table tennis and acting the fool in between points became somewhat legendary around Rochdale at this point, and it illustrates the type of manipulative nature that Smith had deep in his heart. We will be back in just a moment. I'm on the road a lot, and it's really hard to stay properly hydrated on the road. There's so many choices between water and sports drinks, many of them filled with sugars and other chemicals that leave you feeling run down afterwards. But what if I told you there is a better solution? Liquid 4 is the category-winning hydration brand fueling your well-being, and their hydration multiplier is the one product you're missing in your daily routine. In just one stick, you get five essential vitamins and two times faster hydration than water alone. Use it first thing in the morning, before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, and on a long flight. One of the things I like best about the Liquid 4 Hydration Multiplier is their delicious flavor options, such as sea berry, strawberry lemonade, Concord grape, lemon lime, pina colada, or my personal favorite, watermelon. But Liquid 4 doesn't just taste good, it's good for you. It contains five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12, and vitamin C. And it has three times the electrolytes of traditional sport drinks. But best of all, Liquid 4 is non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy, which means that anybody can enjoy it, regardless of their dietary restrictions. And now, just for listeners of my show, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code DCASTPOD at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code DCASTPOD. So go to liquid4, that's IV.com, and use promo code Capital D, capital C, A S T, capital P O D at checkout to get 20% off your order. Liquid 4 Hydration. It's time to take your hydration needs to the next level. Are you tired of the same old boring puzzles? Mix things up with Wongo puzzles. Each puzzle is a custom design with intricate patterns and whimsical shapes that will keep you engaged for hours. Plus, their eco-friendly materials and commitment to sustainability make Wongo puzzles a guilt-free way to unwind. They're 100% wooden puzzles. They'll last forever. Each piece is hand-drawn, so no two pieces are the same, and you'll discover some fun, whimsy pieces as you work through it. They come in a custom wooden box, which is perfect for storage and gifting. With stunning designs and unique shapes, Wongo puzzles are cut above the rest. What are you waiting for? Go to wongopuzzles.com and pick your puzzle today. And be sure to use the promo code DCASTPOD to get 10% off your order. This is the most fun you've had with a puzzle, guaranteed, or your money pack. Go to 
O-N-G-O, puzzles.com, and use the code DCASTPOD to get 10% off your order and get puzzling right now. All right, we are back. I have a fresh cup of coffee. When we left off, we were talking about how Smith was becoming a master at playing table tennis while also developing this new persona of his something of, you know, the lovable comedic buffoon. But he was not just doing that. Smith worked very hard in his studies and also began taking on civic engagements. During his high school years, Smith is known to have been an umpire with the Central Lancashire Cricket League while throwing himself into learning about world history on his downtime. But it wasn't just a quest for knowledge of world history that Smith had. He also threw himself into learning about politics within Great Britain. That would be the Conservatives, the Tories, the Liberal Party, all of that. Smith had a keen desire to learn about and understand these things because he still had that nugget inside of his brain that was driving him on to be greater than he by any rights should have been and eventually enter politics. Specifically, the liberal movement, who during this period of time were seen as outsiders within British politics. Now, it could be that Smith sympathized with their outsider status. It could also be that the message that they were pushing, that of unity and liberal political ideology, resonated with Smith during his teenage years. The idea of helping out the poor and the downtrodden is more likely than not something that he gobbled up, as we've already discussed, Smith himself was among these numbers. Smith ends up leaving school at the age of 17, and while he wanted to go on to university, unfortunately the funds were not there, and he needed to provide for his family. His mother was starting to get a little on in years, and Smith was no longer content to sit back and simply look after his brothers and sisters. He wanted to contribute, and he made it his mission to raise the family's quality of life. He began taking various jobs in order to do this. In conjunction with taking these various jobs, Smith also became involved with a religious movement known as Unitarianism. Unitarianism is basically a religion that is accepting of all religions, creeds, and people, including atheists. Smith joined in with them as, again, much like the liberals of the time, they were seen as an outsider religion. Although Smith, 
as he would come to show in many other aspects of his life, was not one to take a back seat, even in something at, like religion. Smith began by singing in the church's choir before quickly becoming a teacher at their Sunday school. Eventually, Smith was moved up to being the superintendent of this Sunday school, which was a step upward for him in terms of personal power. There were some consequences, however, for Smith in his involvement with the Unitarian Church. Smith later on in life became for his rather loud, outspoken nature, and there is one story recounted in Smile for the Camera, The Double Life of Cyril Smith, that illustrates an early instance of this. After the meetings of the church, many of the members would go back and they would have tea. Smith remarked that the teacups that were being used for this were rather cracked and old and that it was a shame because in his mind they should have had better china and he continued on with this for a couple of weeks until eventually there was a form of violent outburst at which point smith began smashing all of the crockery and demanding that church elders purchase a more fitting set of china for those partaking in these meetings which was eventually done however smith was not willing to let this matter lie and in fact at the following service at the blackwater street church smith was given the opportunity to speak from the pulpit and by all contemporary accounts, Smith delivered a rather grotesque and fire and brimstone sermon in which he called the church elders hypocrites who preached abstinence, not drinking, and avoiding gambling while they themselves partook in all of these affairs behind closed doors. This had the effect of Smith being barred from speaking in front of the church gatherings again. This small setback, however, did little to dampen Smith's ambitions as he very soon found himself in Rochdale's town center, where on any given Sunday evening, it was said that you could find all manner of individuals out on their soapboxes preaching and talking politics. And Smith himself stated that he spent many an hour at this town square with listening to these individuals speak, oftentimes engaging in debates with them. And eventually, this led to Smith taking up his own soapbox from which he would pronounce his own political ideologies to any who cared to listen. These oratory exercises that Smith was undertaking would eventually lead him into contact with those who could help him achieve his goals. However, Smith had a long way to go before reaching that, and 
because of this, Smith was forced to find full-time employment. He eventually found this in the early to mid-1940s, working for the Rochdale Inland Revenue Tax Office, basically meaning, you know, that area's version of the IRS. And his mother was beyond happy that her son was able to land this job, as not only did it offer good, steady wages, it also offered the possibility of a pension. And Smith used this newfound job to better his family's status, going out and purchasing clothing for all of his family members, as well as paying down bills and debts, and generally working to improve all of their living conditions. However, this newfound job was not to last, because in Great Britain, much like in the United States, they have general elections. There had not been a general election held in the United Kingdom since 1935 as the outbreak of World War II had disrupted this and the government rightfully decided that there were many more important issues that needed to be taken care of during that period of time. So the first general election to be held in almost a decade was set to take place in 1945. And Smith, because of his better-than-average oratory abilities and his desire and drive to succeed in life, very quickly found himself involved with the Liberal Party. This was facilitated by a member of the Liberal Party by the name of Frank Lord, who convinced Smith to join with the party. Lloyd further went on to introduce Smith to members of the party, particularly an individual by the name of Charles Harvey, who was the Liberal candidate for Rochdale in this general election. Harvey was a very wealthy individual who owned a mill in Littleborough called Fothergill and Harvey's. During this election, Smith undertook what he called street politics, going door to door inside of Rochdale and talking with the individuals inside in an effort to sway them to vote for his candidate. This in turn led Smith to being asked to speak at a rally where Sir Archibald Sinclair, who was the leader of the Liberal Party, was also speaking. From what I can gather, Smith's speech, while not as great as they would become, was a little lackluster at first, but he eventually warmed to the crowd, and by the end, at least from contemporary accounts, nearly had the people eating out of his hands. There was a problem with this, however, as, according to Smith, the next day when he arrived at the tax office, his boss summoned him to the office and informed him that because he was a public servant, he was forbidden for taking place in politics in a public fashion, and that he would either need to give up his 
involvement in the Liberal Party or give up his job at the tax office. Again, this is Smith's own recounting of what happened, so there is no way to fully verify whether or not this occurred. But by his accounting, Smith was given a day to think over what the man had said and was instructed to bring his mother to the meeting on the following day. Smith left the meeting already knowing that even though it was a good job, with his new connections within the Liberal Party, particularly his connections with Harvey, he would be able to get a job and that he really wanted to pursue a career in politics. It's understandable that his mother is said to have been heartbroken by her son's decision, while at the same time understanding that he was his own man and there was nothing that she could say or do to assuage him from this course that he had set himself on. Smith met with this man the next day and informed him that he did in fact intend to continue on with his life in politics. Smith further stated that the man thanked him for this, shook his hand, and then told him that he had made the right decision, something with Smith took to mean that the man could see he had a life in politics ahead of him. What followed after this was a short period of uncertainty as Smith did not have a job and he was back to working anything that he could find in order to make ends meet. Although eventually he would get a job in the mill owned by Harvey working in the office as a secretary. Now, during this period of time, you have to remember and understand that men working in an office in this capacity was not the norm. It was not like it is today where men working in an office as a secretary is almost as common as it is to see a woman doing this. And there was some scorn cast Cyril's way because of this particularly from the women who Smith worked in the office with. By his own admission, he had never given the fairer sex much mind. However, being in such close proximity to them during this period of time, Smith began to feel the pull of his hormones. Again, this is by Smith's own admission, well, he was a very forceful, loud, and boisterous individual in most other respects. When it came to women, he was very shy and withdrawn. He stated in interviews and in his autobiography years later that during this period of time, he made numerous attempts to ask women in the office out and was rebuffed rather cruelly each time. Eventually, Smith laid eyes on a woman whom, by his own account, he fell madly and deeply in love with as she had everything that he did not, meaning class and culture and looks, 
and he became so infatuated with this woman that he decided it would be best if he did not approach her as he feared that by approaching her he would be rejected and that this rejection would destroy the feelings that he had for this woman. Smith began to daydream about the life the two of them could build together, which is not uncommon among people Smith's age. You have to remember he was 17 years old at this time. Hormones are raging through his body, so this kind of daydreaming fantasy world that he's living in is common among individuals of that age, particularly when they have very little experience with the opposite sex. Now, despite the trepidation he felt around these young women, the open scorn and disdain that they displayed for him, Smith, as he did in many aspects of his life, was able to hammer out a niche for himself that soon gained him respect among these office workers. Smith became the Secretary of the Works Council, which meant that people within the office and within the building had to come for, to him for help. This not only included those he worked with, but also individuals who worked in the mill out on the shop floor, as well as individuals inside of upper management. Smith seems to have been able to handle all of this responsibility with a deft hand, and fairly quickly after joining the mill, Smith was seen as an indispensable part of the company. Which was probably a bit of a boon to him, as the liberals were hammered in the general election, with the majority of England rejecting their party platform in favor of the other two parties. So while Smith felt rejection on many fronts, be it from women or the public at large or in the political spectrum, in his work and home life, he was exalted. And this further to bolstered his opinion of himself and his abilities. And as you're going to see in the next episode, is going to lead Smith from one victory to another. We are going to call the episode at this point. Smith is 17 years old. He has just tasted his first political defeat, but has also moved into a fairly prominent position in the mill owned by the local Liberal Party candidate. I hope you are enjoying this series. I understand there's a lot of slow plotting basics at this point. But I promise you, in the coming episodes, Smith's life is going to build, and you're going to see the creation of not only a powerhouse within politics, 
but also a web of secrecy that is going to be built up around him, not just by his friends and family, but also by the government which he serves. Okay, until next week, if you enjoyed this show, please leave a five-star review wherever it is you get your favorite podcasts. Like and subscribe. Share the show on social media. Until next time, the Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing in conjunction with Big Pond Podcasting. Stay morbid. <laughs>